I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Mark Wheeler is a Lloyds market person through and through. In this interview, he even refers to himself as a Lloyds groupie. That's why it was great to meet him face-to-face in his London office, within 100 metres of the Lloyds building. We went deeply into what his new venture, Mosaic, is really all about. The vision is original, and the plan is incredibly ambitious. Mosaic is all about trying to bring the core advantages of London syndication and very detailed specialty know-how much closer to clients around the world through localised international distribution. That's quite an undertaking. Listening back, Mark is clearly in his element, and our knockabout conversation is a testament to that. There were no taboo subjects. Mark's last words of the interview were, We've covered a lot of ground. It's thought-provoking, and I really appreciate it. I agree with Mark. Let's see whether you do too. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA claim service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to The Voice of Insurance. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Mark. It's fantastic to see you. It's great to see you, particularly in 3D. It's lovely to be in London We've had a fantastic week meeting people, and the city is open for business. And so is Mosaic, and you're busy building a business. So how's the build-up going? What's an update? Have you got an update for us? And do you feel you're ahead of plan or along plan or just lagging slightly behind? For us, it's essentially about getting the infrastructure of the business up and running. People tend to forget that and focus on the product side. But the corporate structure has been a huge part of what we've had a focus on this year in earnest We've been underwriting since the 1st of July with all six of our product lines. So they're all in situ now. We have leadership in place. We've recruited out depth within the teams. We're ready to engage with the market in a conventional underwriting sense. The current focus for us is establishing geographic distribution. So today we're in London, we're in Bermuda, we're in New York. We have individuals in Chicago as well, but one physical location in New York. One thing that we're trying to really focus on is expanding that distribution. So within the next 
three or four months, we'll have opened in Singapore. We'll expect to be in Dubai, in Frankfurt, and Toronto. We really are very busy. It's not, it's not just a throwaway line. And the reason why we want to do that is, I always describe us as an underwriter's underwriter. So our underwriters are not just about deploying a balance sheet for proprietary capital. Their role is to think about portfolio construction, where we underwrite on behalf of other people. Do you want me to break that down? Absolutely. We'll go into that into a lot of detail, actually. I think it'd be really, that's okay. really interesting. So we effectively have two capital pools. One is Syndicate 1609, our Lloyd Syndicate, very much the heart of our business. And that is our proprietary business. It's our market-making business. Alongside that, we have what we call our syndicated capital management business. And that is where we engage third-party capital. It's all trade capital today. I expect that to change in the future. Now, I don't think we're talking about a long time frame there. But those are individuals who are prepared to put their capital at risk alongside us in the market in, in syndication. And it's a really important, it's a fundamental point of Mosaic. It's within our name, but it's, it's really within the purpose of the company. One of our guiding principles was around collaboration. It was around, you know, this great London syndicated product, which if you're a London, I'm a Lloyd's groupie, and many people in London just take for granted. But it has immense value to clients. And that was particularly evident post-2008. And I think at that time, many listeners will remember the surge of surplus lines business moving to London, and an American company lost its position in the market. Lloyd's came from a distant second to an outright winner in that space, which is a position that it still preserves. And nothing else had changed, really, other than the counterparty risk at, at that time. And I think that's still very much alive in risk managers' minds. It's probably more pronounced as they contemplate all of the risk around them today, the market risk. And I don't just mean the insurance risk, but market and credit. So I think syndication is much more valuable today, probably, than at other times in our career. That's the first piece. And the second element of that, which sits alongside the importance of our geographical reach, is, is really now this, I mean, as, as long as we've been associated with the market, a decade-long move of clients preferring to buy business closer to home. And I just think it's a natural human thing. And so during our careers, we've seen massive development in, in Singapore, in Dubai, in, in Miami, and that was business that was all coming to London before. It's really interesting to see when I'm observing this sort of class of 2020, how we want to describe it, new capital formation that's happened in this post-COVID harder market. Obviously, lots of people trying to do it in different ways, but you're one of the only ones wanting to build a multi-platform business. And so with that, I'm presuming that means it just must be slower. You now you've got to get Bermuda, London, New York, Chicago, Singapore, Dubai. Does that mean that your plan is necessarily going to be something where the first couple of years you didn't pencil in the sort of growth that you would have had if you were just really focused on you know Bermuda only or Lloyd Syndicate only, for example? Yeah, so there's absolutely no doubt that this takes longer. Can I just take a step back from that? Because the shareholding of the company is really important in that context and determined the route that we went. We were very fortunate to find backing from a firm called Golden Gate who have perpetual capital and there are other ways of getting longer duration funding, obviously, and a few examples in the market. But it's unusual in PE. So we very much had that in mind when we embarked 
on this project. We have a much longer J-curve. We were very clear in our mind about the products that we wanted to write. Very, very clear. We did a lot of research around that. You know, it's fun having a blank slate. We initially set aside criteria for the sorts of products that we would write, really to keep the integrity of that. And the first rule was that we would only write lines of business that had an exceptionally high technical barrier of entry. Remembering where an underwriter's underwriter say, we want to underwrite on behalf of other people. And if it's a skill that's readily available, then we'd question, what's our value add? The second point was identifying lines of business at a certain stage of their development. So the PNC market slightly lags GDP, certainly in the, in the developing world. And Swiss Re have great statistics on this going back many years. We wanted to choose products that where the underlying growth exceeded normalized GWP. And of course, that would have been different through COVID. But what one could imagine as normalized GDP. And that speaks to a point in time and a product's development as well. We also felt very strongly that we wanted to write lines of business that were more severity rather than frequency exposed. And the rationale to that was we felt that that was a core characteristic to not being commoditized. And again, if business could be commoditized, then arguably it stops becoming specialty. That could be it's one of my personal definitions of severity. Or severity because there's that fear that you can't commoditize it because it's still slightly terrifying to other people. Yeah, no, and I think it's partly data related. It's not auto insurance or homeowners. The limits are higher. It's just harder to model and um, there's less. When all is said and done, there's just lost data and it gives actuaries the heebie-jeebies. So, you know, that element of risk, of course, exists throughout the whole buying chain, the client himself is worried about it. Our job is to pick those risks that are shown to us, and that, that's a key role for us, is, is the selection piece. In addition to that, it's the creation of portfolios again, and of course, buying the right sort of reinsurance behind that as well. So there's more risk and we want to get paid for it. I suppose the short. It's very interesting you talking about being an underwriter who gets paid to underwrite on behalf of other people. And that almost sounds a bit like an MGA. And in fact, what's been interesting I've had Bob Kimmel of K2. I've had recently, just had a podcast with William Spiegel at R&Q. And then they're talking about this hybrid MGA model where they've got all the licenses, they've got actually got a balance sheet of their own, and they're helping sort of providing that to other people. Do you see yourself as part of this sort of change in style? Is Mosaic a sort of variant of that and that you're underwriting on behalf of other people, but also on behalf of yourself, of course? It's hybrid in that sense. There are similarities, but it's not unique. And it's, you know, I can categorically say it's not how we arrived at that structure. And I think looking at the rest of the population, they're either carriers that started out life as a balance sheet play that evolved into agency underwriting. And a really amazing example of that would be HCC. You know, it did phenomenally well there. And then there are a number of, of more recent examples, and particularly you know, CFC a really established binding authority business that set up a syndicate to take an anchor alignment position in their book. So again, it goes back to the blank sheet. The real privilege of it is thinking about what's the optimal way at this point of time to engage in the market. And our view was that capital is a commodity. Our view was that there was a need for true and pure specialty. And it was about thinking about the frailties of both models as well. If you've got a big balance sheet, you have to act in a certain way. And indeed, talking to capital providers, a number suggested that 
we entered the property cap market and built scale quickly. And relating to your question earlier about the length of the J curve, it's tempting. It's very tempting. It's certainly been the strategy of others who want to get long term into specialty, but would quite like the cash flow getting into property cap quickly because obviously you can do it very fast in Bermuda, get that cash in and help fund the build out of the rest of the business. But you haven't wanted to do it that way. And that's why you've got a more patient capital partner. We just want to torture ourselves. It's, um, <laughs> it is more so difficult. If you want to build yeah, it's, it's going to be quite a, long, a longer term process than, than Yeah, and it, and it really needed a capital provider who understood. I mean, it's not in UNDA, but that were prepared to say, okay, there's a different way of doing this. And we're prepared to put those J-curve issues to one side. I mean, not to dismiss them, but just to say there's a much bigger prize at the other end of this with some patience. But then it's quite expensive, though. So presumably you have to get to quite a lot of scale in order to, to service all those different operations and regulatory compliance regimes and all that stuff. Presumably you have to get a certain amount, quite a big number, you know, on year five or whatever to justify the different expense that you'd be having to sustain. Yeah, I, I think... Ultimately, it's all about good underwriting. And in particular, because our agency structure that we can get to the right place in terms of a two-digit combined ratio, actually quicker than we would have been able to on a balance sheet model. In fact, we're very confident about that. Because you can flex your capital. Presume that you don't need as much capital because obviously you have enough to be skin in the game um, well, and have skin in the game. I don't really like that description because I think we have we have the same amount of you're, capital with the same game. It's just, yeah, and it's on different balance sheets. So it's not capital light. It's just a mix of capital. There's, a, there's the same capital coming to the table for, for the rating and the financial guarantees that sit behind that. That is categorically not the model. It's more about us taking, capitalizing our proprietary book, taking our share of the business, and then in conjunction with others, selling them insurance expertise for a fee. I really honestly think everybody's a winner. If you take our transactional liability business, we've been around six months in that space. We've recruited around 20 underwriters. Our G&A, off the top of my head, is about 18% just on the salary side there. It's a huge investment. And that's before we start talking about the expense of building out the offices. And we are very comfortable that we can sate ourselves in terms of risk appetite and we can sell that underwriting access both in terms of the product expertise and the market entry by people who sit alongside us. An overrider, which is far lower than the GNA, it's actually far less than they are paying far less to access the business than we are. So it's really interesting. You're not leveraging that in any sense. You're not, you're not, you're not making a profit from day one on that. Absolutely not. But the real attraction for this, making sure you're local with this, but with a really kind of global stick, is the idea of, say, you're going up to going to Singapore into the terror market there and saying, we've got the $600 million line. And you're going to almost, by definition, have a much 10 times bigger line than anybody else in that marketplace. Is that sort of what you want to be, sort of to always be the big gorilla in those local markets? We want to be very relevant in those local markets. And we want people to take notice of us it's sort of business, isn't it? It doesn't matter what industry you're in. But more importantly, it's a corollary, really, again, because it wasn't the reason why we went down that road. We really wanted to take syndicated product elsewhere in the world. And one could argue that a normal binding authority is a syndicated product. Through a client focus, it isn't. You know, binding authorities, I think, work very well in standard P&C lines, but they have particular frailties around claim settlement and specialty. 
specialty claims are complicated and supporting underwriters are, are reluctant to delegate claims handling decisions. And if you take you know, all of our business lines, one of those characteristics is they have really complicated claims. Our clients want to have the contractual relationship with the paper. We're the proprietary paper, we're the market-making paper, and we bring others along with us. And in many ways, I actually think it's a superior product because there is one claim settling authority. I think that's entirely unique. Yeah, and I'm certainly with you on some of these, the classes that you're in being very complicated. I remember some of the claims that came out of the riots in Bangkok. Great for us journalists. So I suppose to get back to the here and now, so what sort of growth are you penciling in for 2022? Well, quite extreme and exciting because it is our second year. This is getting <laughs> the good part. Presumably. Yeah. As I said, you know, we spent quite a bit of time just getting the firm on the tarmac and ready to go. 2021 is really a six-month year for us. And even when you think about it in those terms, the underwriting teams, are, I mean, they're still coming aboard at pace. Barely a day goes past, we haven't got a new underwriter joining. To share the numbers, in this year, we expect to write about $130 million. We're really pleased with that. Next year, I think our growth expectation is 350%, that, that kind of order. And part of that will be through our Lloyd Syndicate, and part of that will be through the syndicated capital management piece. It's broadly in line with our original expectations. So I think it's a surprise to Lloyd's. It's what we set out and said that we thought was achievable. The market conditions are almost certain. I think on, on every count, on every metric, are somewhat better than we originally expected. See, Lloyd's has been through a remediation process. And we, I just had um, Patrick Tin on, on the show. And that's going to be an ongoing process. Obviously, we've got the franchise to protect. But do you worry that being in Lloyd's at times is going to put a break on your growth that you're going to be dictated to? It's say, well, sorry, we can't be growing. We can't be seen to be growing at this time. It may be. And, and Lloyd's has lots of detractors and, and lots of big cats have chosen not to go there. We've elected to go there. So it's very clear what our positioning is on that. And I think the benefits of Lloyd's incredibly well rehearsed and we intend to take advantage of those. You're confident that you'll be able to get the sort of growth to fulfill that plan. It's not going to be sort of, you know, stymied in any way. I think it all comes back to execution and delivery. And, and I don't think anybody's getting held up at Lloyd's with good underwriting results. And how's the market at the moment? There's different commentary at different times. And obviously, at this time of year, there's a lot of reinsurance commentary. What's your gut feeling at the moment in terms of rate? Is, is things starting to moderate or does it not matter because it's all compound interest anyway, so it doesn't matter? Yeah, I mean, this is a question I've been asking everybody this week. So I can synthesize probably about 20 comments. I think the consensus view is there's no one answer fits all and there's a great deal of difference by geography and by product line. I think, you know, in part because of the characteristics of the book that we're writing, and just to rehearse that, it's transactional liability. That's M&A and tax business. That's going to be our largest single line. We're writing cyber. So both of those classes are pretty hot at the moment. Uh, we're also writing political risk, again, quite a hot class. We're writing professional lines and we're writing FI. Also pretty hot. Yes. Yeah, I think that's true. We always have a tendency to be hot every now and again. Anyway. Yeah, and I think it goes back to you know, our criterion and the relevance, having product that's relevant, cross-cycle. and. I don't think this is a bad thing. We're not setting up our stall as an opportunistic play. And I think part of that is... Is it just a coincidence that they happen to all be pretty hot at the moment? Because you've always historically been involved in these classes. Yeah, we have. It just goes back to the criteria and thinking about what's relevant today and particularly where we felt returns were deliverable across the cycle. So 
North American DNA is a really exciting place to be underwriting business at the moment. US excess casualties are a really exciting place to be writing business, but I can't speak to other capital's appetite for that across the cycle and, and how they're planning and managing that, but it doesn't sit within our portfolio appetite. So generally, your core classes, you're fairly optimistic about all of them because they're all still in either in a, some of them particularly hot sort of remediation phase and, and others are all experiencing rate rises. Yeah, I think so. I look at it in a completely different way. And it's always the temptation in our industry to talk about rate change and rate rise. And I, I honestly don't really care about that. As long as it's adequate. I just want rate adequacy. Mitch talks about the industry writing business through... The rear view mirror. Rear view, yeah. So we're very much through the windshield. And through the windshield in terms of selecting what business we write, we're trying to think ahead what's going to be the most relevant, in, not just next year, but across the next cycle. We're trying to think about what sort of information is going to drive loss activity in that. I'm not surprised. I'm obviously really pleased. If you ask me how I felt about where the business is today relative to what we were planning, I'd say we're very happy and we'd absolutely take it. Also, when we had Mitch on the show earlier in the year, I suppose a lot of the class of 2020 have been able to say, rather than just saying we've got a pristine balance sheet, which used to be enough to get everyone through the door, um, these days have been able to say, well, we don't just have that. We have a no legacy on our technology side. And you've come in with a very clean slate on the tech front. How's that going on that build out? And do you think he was saying that you might be getting five points expense advantage on either side of those, partly for the one side being the process efficiency and the other side being the improved risk selection because of having better understanding and analysis of risk. How's that going so far? Is it too soon to say that you've got any kind of result out of that? We're writing the book today. I hate that expression, insurance. It's, it's either too soon to tell or too late to do anything about it. Normally try and avoid that. But the pieces are in place. I think it represents part of the corporate build-out for us. We've recently announced a partnership, a true partnership with DXC, which doesn't mean we're paying the money to provide us with a service. It means we're co-investing to build an underwriting model. I'll just quickly rehearse it because I think you covered it with you in detail when you spoke. It's really in three pillars. One is about informing underwriters, so data and analysis and AI. We're bringing in underwriters from outside the industry and they're giving us different views on risk that, you know, after, I've been writing specialty lines for 36 years and there are things that particularly around assessing moral risk that I hadn't thought of before and particularly in the cyber area. So that's really interesting and really exciting. The second piece really sits alongside our syndicated capital management business, which is about sharing information. And I'm loathed to use the word blockchain overused word in our industry. We feel very comfortable that we're going to be able to bring together an incredibly efficient system that dispenses with borderos, that allows us to share information with our trading partners. Really simple things like what the aggregate is, cash flow position is, and on an individual risk level. Again, remembering we're specialty, not homeowners, not auto. This shouldn't be batchable business in that sense. It's hugely important and it's not being done at the moment. So, you know, it's one of those sort of throwaways. So you're actually going to be trying to model, I don't know, the effect of the oil price going up on political risk or that kind of thing almost, or sort of at least work out what the exposure might be. Or Yeah, I mean, that, that could be one of the things we look at, for instance. So I was talking to a credit agency recently, and the background to the conversation was understanding credit risk in the context of financial institution insurance. And they started talking about the impact of moral risk in credit. And I hadn't sort of thought it through in those times before. That conversation 
morphed into a conversation about cyber and, and how a lot of cyber losses are occasioned by employee breaches in how employees... So that's where I was going to go into that moral question. So it's, there's a lot of disgruntled employee sort of stuff going on. Yeah, so it's phenomenal. So, so this particular company, when they were assessing the credit worthiness of a firm, were looking at the moral engagement of the staff that worked at that company, which went down as far as to what extent their passwords were available on, on the dark web and other information being traded about the employers, the employees, sorry, of that company. You know, that really sets the imagination running about what sort of information we can gather there from a, a cyber breach type of risk. You need this big system that won't fall over every time you try and plug in new bits of data, You're trying to make something that's really robust enough to make it work. And we wouldn't be able to do that without DXE. Fair enough. Fair enough. You were talking about cyber. Cyber's obviously a maturing class and it's into its first hard market. We have the sort of honeymoon phase, particularly probably just as well in the, the depths of the softer markets of, of a few years ago, that cyber was a bit of a savior on the, on, the, on the growth front. And then, of course, everything starts to mature and losses are coming in, not only frequency, but quite severe as well. And we haven't even had a catastrophe. We haven't had a cat yet. So where do you think this class is going to be in 10 or 15 years' time when it really settles itself down? And where will the industry, the insurance industry be playing? And where do you think uh, the state will be playing, if indeed you think the state or, you know, states will be playing a role somewhere? There's lots of questions in that. I don't know where it, I haven't got Let's a, just talk about cyber I haven't got a then. clue where it's going to be in 10 or 15 years' time. That's clearly accelerated over the COVID experience for obvious reasons. But for us, it was more the fact that tech is a part of everyday life. It's a part of every division within a business. In a client-focused mentality, it's a solution you've got to provide if you're a true specialty insurer. It's unavoidable. It's inescapable. I wanted to pick up on a word you used in the question about, it, about the cat and the cat hasn't happened yet. Our view is that it should be just as a cat cover, and it hasn't been so much. There's been more attritional. There's a lot of lazy thinking about cyber. It's the easiest thing in the world to say you can't assess the systemic and correlated risk. You know, it's, it's a, every single bluffer's guide. And that's true of other classes as well. I was really lucky, fortunate to work at Syndicate 1007, who'd been, and the leadership there had been the creators of the Lloyd's Computer Crime Policy. This was a conversation that was being had in that context, and I think that form was released in 1982 or early 80s. And those same concerns exist today around systemic risk, and at that time, underwriters were terrified about giving banks computer crime coverage. And there was a, a, a misassessment of risk, or the price of risk between the banks who really wanted the cover and the underwriters who were offering it. I think pretty much every bank in the world today buys computer crime. There are going to be parallels in cyber for sure. But our approach is we want to write cat cover to businesses who are concerned with data breach losses and business interruption. So you know, ransomware is a part of it, and we want to be able to manage that. It's a proper cover. We want to be able to manage it through sublimits and attachment rather than it be a big distorter to the record in the way that it has been over the last 12 months. But then in a market that some of the capacity is, is probably contracting in the, in the aggregate, isn't it, I would say? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. Definitely. Are you able to come and amass that consortium-style package so that you can come and say and be relevant to a, a reasonably large company that needs to buy a pretty big limit? You don't need to have a, an exceptionally large limit to be relevant in cyber today. 
I don't know what the average line is for companies across the market, but I, I would guess it's going to be less than 10 million now and 25 million lines were regularly being put out two years ago. So a few people have pulled out, not many, but there's been a cascade in limit. I think it's well documented what's going on in rates and available capacity as a result of that. Are you suggesting that we should be shifting up higher, away from the attritional stuff and the middle stuff up to the higher, new higher layers that, and that the customer themselves are going to have to be a bit more sophisticated about some of the low level stuff? I think that's an inevitability of, of a market that's correcting in this way. And certainly for our approach and our appetite where we think we're providing cat cover rather than daily working frequency losses, then that will happen. I don't know what others are doing. Good. Well, the government bit's really interesting. Yeah, what about the government part? Where do you think that's going to be? Obviously, we've just had a pandemic and we sort of understood where the limits are. If we have the equivalent of you know, a viral you know, computer virus pandemic of some description. Yeah. You know, I don't know whether I'm supposed to upgrade to Windows 11 today or tomorrow or, or wait until all the first bugs have been ironed out. But I don't know. These things happen and they're systemic. Um, yeah. More or less, aren't they? I mean, unless you've got an Apple, which is about you know, but ninety percent of people have got a PC. You just wonder one day the Windows Eleven virus will be the thing, or, or whatever it is that just basically shuts down the whole world in some description, yeah. or that you know everyone either runs on SAP or Oracle. What if you took both of them out on the same day? I don't know what would happen in the world. But you know, at some point, we're going to have this systemic risk, and you're going to say, "Well, that was like the ultimate terror event in well, that was our nine eleven, yeah, in cyber." And at what point do you think? Everyone will be withdrawing cover and then the government will have to step in? Or? I hope not because my job's to sell insurance. So that would be really disappointing. When I said earlier that it's lazy thinking not to be able to work out your aggregate, I didn't mean it in a totally flippant way. I think it's also disingenuous. It should be. Obviously, it's a technological problem and therefore it must have a technological solution, even though this aggregate, of course, is going to change every millisecond. But now yeah. we can measure it every millisecond. We can definitely measure it and we can definitely control it. And when all is said and done, it's up to the underwriter. If they're writing aggregate limits of liability, they can manage their total aggregate in different sectors. I think geography is obviously far less important. It's a manageable exposure. Where it becomes disingenuous is suggesting that the... Exposure grows in the way we, we think it does, then it's the insurance industry hasn't got enough capital to cover that sort of event. And I, I think that's in the really more extreme RDS scenarios. When it becomes war, when it mixes in with war and it yeah, gets very not, woolly about, and it also it would be undeclared war and we'll never be able to find out who actually started the war. Yeah. So it's not hard to imagine. And I think part of the answer to it is where's the incentive? So in the way that we've seen governments step in in the US and here in many countries around terrorism, there seems to be parallels for critical infrastructure and critical risk type societal exposures where government will feel the need, I think. I, I don't know how they're going to engage. The terrorism model seems like quite a good one as a, as a backstop in a, in a reinsurance type situation. Before we get there, though, one of the things that I think is quite interesting is I'm surprised that haven't, more industry captives haven't evolved. So I joined the market in the mid-80s and, you know, it's at the tail end of the U.S. casualty crisis and there were doctor groups, lawyer groups, banks joining together and, and forming their risk retention groups. It feels like that could happen in cyber. And there's, there's definitely a way, as proven by those projects for the insurance industry, to engage there. You'd welcome that, would you? I'd really welcome it. And I think it's another way, actually, to provide something you know, for the insurance industry to just get on its front foot 
and provide something to clients and just be very clear about what our aggregate support is around that. And then the, those sort of those mutual or risk retention groups will help impose the sort of data standards and hygiene standards that governments are trying to do, but not really necessarily succeeding at the moment. Yes, there's real self-interest through that. You know, the great thing about a mutual is you only want people at least as good as you in it. <laughs> uh, you know, so and that's another thing that I think is attractive for insurers is there's this self-regulating and self-policing of the exposure. I'm going to change the subject a bit. Obviously. Uh, sitting in your new London offices at Mosaic. But some of the people around and about these streets who are sitting in London, of course, so that people are always bumping into each other and everyone's talking about each other all the time, um, might recognise lots of familiar faces at Mosaic from previous incarnations. And they'd say, well, are you just getting the old band back together, Mark? And what, what do you say to them if they say that to you? Yeah, well, could, they probably could, don't say that to your face. No, so they, they do. Just tell people like me. Quite a, quite a <laughs> few people do say it. Yeah, sure. A part of that's true. And big part of that is is actually, I think, a competitive advantage for us because a big part of our business and, and phrases we use all the time here are collaboration and trust. And you know, that's within our SEM model, it's within our technology relationship with DXC. And uh, you know, there ain't much better trust than people you've known for three decades and there are quite a few of us in the firm who've worked together that long. But there's a core there, but there are a lot of people here who we've met for the first time and are not former colleagues. And it's not how we started. We started with a product set that we wanted to write. And we took a step back from that and then took a view on the market on who the best people were, and we went after them. And that's not over yet. We want to build dominant market shares around the world. And in order to do that, that would be executed through the people and the caliber of the people that we hire and very sincerely, the thing that I am most proud of and our best achievement are the, the people that Mosaic's attracted. And that gets commented to me a lot. And I think it's fantastic. I think it's a fair answer. We're more of an orchestra than a band. <laughs> <laughs> um, something else that's really rocketed through uh, into our consciousness collectively in 2021 has been this three-letter acronym, ESG. It's sort of become the acronym, the three-letter acronym of the year, definitely, if there was going to, we were going to just shout prizes for that. And it seems to have happened, perhaps taken a lot of people a little bit by surprise, the speed at which these things are happening, the way that we, you know, in London, we're seeing environmental protesters up and down, you know, outside Lloyd's and sort of dumping coal and sort of blocking roads yeah. and stuff. What do you think that are the sort of main threats and or opportunities that this is going to throw up yeah. for a business like yours? And it sounds like it's the sort of thing that's up your street. Well, I think that there are massive implications for the insurance industry. And I would say, you know, as you know, Ironshore was bought by Liberty in 2018. And Liberty take ESG really seriously. And, and to give them a call out, I learned a lot about this subject working there and how they tackled it. As a massive global insurance company, they were, were looking at the subject from lots of different fronts, from the investment side, from P&C side to specialty. So I've got probably a somewhat different view than, a, you know, as I referred to myself as a Lloyd Groupie earlier. That was really informing. And I think the implications are clear. There, there are lots of initiatives. We've seen Beasley's syndicate recently. There are a number of stated initiatives around helping customers migrate through ESG. You know, in a very simple sense, you know, we all want to do the right thing. And we all want to associate with clients that do the right thing. Do you think they're better risks anyway? 
So there's a defendable, I think, view. There's a different attitude towards risk management. There's a, a different view on you know, just how you present yourself. To that. And, that, and that must translate in litigation, how you position yourself. And to your point, it's a big societal move. So, yeah, I think if you're going against that trend, then you're going to be quite conspicuous. Then it's not sustainable anyway, because I suppose we all know that if insuring coal mines is not going to be a very long-term business, just because they're going to be phased out at some point in our lifetimes, we expect. Or- yes. But, and that's why I really like the transition piece, because you know we can't just make them vanish. I, I like the role that insurance is playing with helping some of those firms get there in a way where not everybody can be happy, but can live with the results as we transition through that period. But for me, it's just about client selection. When I, you know, I think about it as a cold-blooded business guy. Because there's definitely exposure there in all sorts of classes, isn't there? Potentially, well, in, you know, going mostly up, back up to boards, I uh, would presume. Yeah, definitely. And, and there must be value in the SG rating. Somebody spent a lot of time collating those and ascribing value to it. So whether you agree with it or not, there's a discussion point and a challenge point, especially in the lines we're in. Selection is the most difficult thing. And, and any tool that we've got to help us make decisions, you know, what's the difference between Standard Chartered Bank and HSBC Bank? That question requires a lot of in-depth thought and, and a big part of its culture, and this plays into it. Yeah, It's not a tool we had not that many years ago. My last question would be to ask you what sort of business owner you want to be. Obviously, there are lots of different types, sort of private equity style entrepreneurs who are sort of looking at year six when the, you know they're going to be able to cash out and buy a big yacht. or And there are others who want to build something with their name above the door. You don't have your name above this door, but if you know what I mean, to build something that they're going to be proud of, that they're going to hand on to their grandchildren type business. What sort of business owner are you when you're thinking about Mosaic? Yeah. So I think it's standard advice whenever you set a company up, you've got to have an exit plan. And I don't have one at all. And I don't, I'm sure Mitch does. I'm sure he does. I don't think it is necessary. It's categorically not in my mindset. And I talked to one of my colleagues, Ray's, about this this summer. I went to Tuscany and visited at the Antonori Vineyard and was gobsmacked to see the largest, probably finest producer of Italian wine in its 26th generation. And I'm not suggesting for one minute Mosaic's going to be a 26th generation firm, but it, to me, it just proved that actually you don't need to have an exit plan. There's plenty of value in terms of building all of the, the strengths that are associated with that. I don't want to suggest for one second that Golden Gate have any interest in supporting us for 26 generations, for sure. But for us, we're trying to build a globally relevant company. It's going to take a long time. I'm 56. I'd love to be doing this in at least 10 years, hopefully 15 years' time. I think by then we'll have started to make, make a mark. I think what's more important, it's not for me to say who our shareholders will be. I'd love us to be independent, maybe somewhat controversially or provocatively. Specialty and, and standard PNC don't are not good bedfellows. It's very hard to think of examples of specialty firms within PNC companies that do exceptionally well. And so I, I think it's in our interest and it's in our clients' interest to protect the integrity of that. They're completely different business models. I feel quite strongly about that. I'd be surprised if we lined up to be a strategic somewhere. So we'll hopefully be drinking fine vintages of, of uh, reserve releases uh, in tw- you know, 30 years' time, and you're buying yachts along the way rather than having to sell everything in order to buy one. So you're just buying many. Thank you so much, Mark. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. It's, it's fascinating to be in the same room with you and be chatting about this project that you're on. So 
I won't take up any more of your time and let you get on. Thank you, Mark. We covered a lot of ground. It's thought-provoking. I really appreciate it. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. Thank you.